Welcome to The Hive Podcast, a new 10-part series with me, Natalie Nahai, exploring technology's impact on our personal, cultural and political lives. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube and join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. If you enjoy the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes as it helps spread the word and makes it easier for other people to also find this content. And now for the show. Dr. David Stilwell is the Deputy Director of the Psychometric Centre at the University of Cambridge, and he's also a lecturer in Big Data Analytics and Quantitative Social Science. While researching his PhD in Cognitive Decision Making, David created a Facebook app called My Personality and a user-facing app called Apply Magic Source, both of which accurately predict the psychological traits of users from their digital footprints of online behaviour. Over 6 million people have taken the My Personality questionnaire and quite unsurprisingly, his research has attracted a lot of attention in the press for its predictive accuracy and potential implications. In this episode, we'll be exploring the fascinating and sometimes frightening world of psychometric profiling and data mining, how it's done, what it can reveal, and where responsibility for ethical practice might lie. David, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have you uh, in conversation. Hello, Natalie. So um, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about psychometric research, what it is and how it works? Okay, so um, basically, as psychometricians, we're trying to measure stuff that's going on in people's heads. Um, so if you wanted to measure how tall someone is, then you could use a ruler. But if you want to measure how extroverted someone is or how, uh, you know, how good their numerical ability is, then you can't use you know, physical means to find out the answer to those questions. Um, so what we do is we come up with questionnaires, we come up with tests, and we use those to try and find out what are the individual differences between people? Um, you know, which people are great at maths, which people aren't great at maths. Um, so this kind of stuff is used in uh, business. It's used in selecting people for jobs based on, you know, personality, based on um, job-related skills. It's used in education as well. So um, if you want to measure how good someone is, then you use an exam and a psychometrician might check how good that exam is. Um, it's even used in medicine. So if you want to measure how depressed someone is or someone's physical functioning, then you might use a questionnaire to say, you know, how difficult do you find it to get out of bed in the morning? Can you run a marathon? Um, and, 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 and again, we're trying to measure these things that sort of people um, perceive in their heads um, rather than sort of physical things. Fascinating. And when you're using these sorts of questionnaires and tools online, what are some of the ways in which they can be deployed? Yeah, so we, um, well, I, I created this My Personality app, as you mentioned, so people can, you know, take a questionnaire, um, write about themselves, and then they get feedback on the results. So it all gets analyzed automatically. Um, there's a mathematical formula behind it that then says, well, given this set of answers on the questionnaire, then here is uh, where you sit on this scale from, you know, low extroversion to high extroversion compared to other people who've taken the same scale scale. 
Um, so my research specifically is, is started looking at can we replace these questionnaires with the other data that people have already sort of um, uh, made available or at least, you know, uh, have, have ended up being collected through going about their everyday lives. Um, so in, instead of asking people, you know, uh, I like going to parties, strongly agree, strongly disagree, we can actually use their Facebook data, for example, to see how many parties do they actually go to. Um, and then instead of, you know, them talking about their opinion of, of whether they like going to parties or not, it's sort of based on more objective data. How many parties do they actually go to? Mm, so you're basically getting a truer read for people's actual behaviour uh, as opposed to self-reported indications of what their behaviour might be like or idealised versions of what we'd like to think we like. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, the digital data isn't perfect. So um, the way that someone acts on Twitter or on social media is to some extent idealized as well. Um, but certainly with a questionnaire, at least if you're trying to look great when applying for a job, you only have to present yourself as great, you know, for a couple of hours it takes to do a questionnaire. Whereas if you're trying to do that with your, you know, your Twitter data, then you might have to write all these brilliant tweets over years and years. Um, and it's much more difficult to sort of fake for such a long time. And do you think that people are aware at the level at which um, these sorts of research practices can be deployed? So, for instance, when, just to give people a bit of background, back in 2012, alongside Mikhail Kaczynski and Thor Grapel at the Psychometric Centre at Cambridge, um, you co-authored what's now considered one of the most seminal pieces of research exploring how private traits and attributes, some of the things that you mentioned, like extroversion, etc., can be predicted from our digital records. Um, in this case, using Facebook likes of over, I think it was 58,000 volunteers, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So it was, it was one of the first studies of its kind that actually showed that this was possible, you know, to use this kind of data automatically to accurately predict a range of really... Um, sensitive personal information, so things like our sexual orientation, ethnicity, religious and political views, um, intelligence, happiness, use of addictive substances, etc. This sort of example that we're giving here, was, these were volunteers, so there was obviously informed consent, it being an academic study, but do you think people are aware of the amount of information that they give away, even nowadays when people are a little bit more aware of the fact that their data isn't private? Do they know how far people can go? Yeah, so that that was why I think our study got so much um, interest, you know, uh, among academics, but also among the general population, because we were sort of contrasting these things that you're clicking the like button on. So my favorite celebrities, my favorite musicians, my favorite films, um, stuff that people did kind of without really thinking too much about it. We have these really personal things where previously, you know, to measure someone's personality involved quite a sort of formal questionnaire and quite a, um, uh, you know, quite, quite a formal setup to actually do it. Um, so just, just this contrast between stuff that people do without thinking and, and these really personal things um, was, was, was what surprised people. Now, are people more aware now? I'd, I'd like to think they're a little bit more aware. But on the other hand, I, I think People are not necessarily um, that concerned by what is possible. They're more concerned with what's actually being done. Um, so, um, you know, knowing that 
uh, you know, Facebook or Google or whatever could do something is different to knowing, you know, what are they actually doing with our data? And I think that's what's um, a bit missing at the moment. It's that sort of, um, uh, you know, just, just because it's possible, it doesn't mean that it's being done. And people want to know, well, what, what are you actually doing with the data? And do you think that people are starting to have an understanding of the possible implications? So, for instance, I know that in China, there's a really interesting, oh, quite frightening system um, of rating citizens based on various traits, including for trustworthiness. Uh, it being, it's in the process of being developed and deployed. Do you think that's something that people believe is possible with this kind of data? Or do you think it just doesn't even strike us because it's not happening yet? Or if any of this kind of information is being compiled on people, so our propensity to, I don't know, take more risks or have a propensity towards drug use or whatever, that we just think it won't be used against us by insurance companies or governments or whatever it might be? Yeah, so China's definitely going the furthest, I think, in terms of really putting some of these possible um, uh, sort of uh, algorithms into practice. So, yeah, I, I saw someone tweeted that they were on a train going into going into Beijing and the automated announcement on the train said, you know, don't break the train rules because if you do, they'll be put onto your credit score. Um, so suddenly, you know, not throwing away rubbish on the train might mean I'm not given a loan. Or the other one I heard about was um, police people in a train station wearing um, sort of, uh, you know, not Google Glass, but something a bit like Google Glass, so glasses with a camera on. And this camera was looking at the faces of other people walking past and um, it could then recognize if there was a face of someone who, you know, was wanted by the police um, and then they could go over to this person and arrest them. Um, and apparently they did catch multiple people who'd been on the run for some for some time, um, you know, just just passing by in a train station because they had this automated facial recognition. Um, and I think in the West, we're kind of used to that certain classes of decisions are protected and have lots of rules around them. Um, so it's not so easy to use this stuff in, um, you know, in, in credit scoring, for example. Um, so we do have some kind of protection. But on the other hand, just the potential uses of it are so wide. So the um, facial recognition at train stations, the, there, there aren't sort of law, special laws for everything. And... Um, people haven't necessarily thought about what's possible. And I'm not sure that they really will until it starts happening. Um, and then they'll start reacting to what's being done. Mm, it seems to me that um, in the West, not just the West, but I think when you look at cultural patterns of populations, um, we tend to be more short-term oriented. And I think this idea of only making, um, only contemplating the potential ramifications of something when it's starting to impact us in the here and now, as opposed to thinking, well, how might this be used in 10, 15 years time? We're not kind of in a cultural context in which we tend to think about stuff in the long term. With China as well, the population is so huge that, um, you know, companies and, and people in general know that you can't offer some kind of personalized service based on a person making a decision. So you just expect that, you know, all data in China is big data. So everything has to be done on a large scale, which means you're going to get these decisions that were previously made by humans starting to be made by algorithms. And that's something that, you know, both they accept and they sort of want to happen because if an algorithm isn't doing it, then, you know, it will be too expensive for a person to do it on such a large scale. Well, so let's talk about big data for a little bit. So 
um, specifically the use of psychographic targeting with regards to, uh, let's say, about political ads, because that's obviously been at the forefront of many discussions in the last in the last while. So um, the profiling methods that were used, for instance, in the US and in the UK regarding Trump and then the Brexit campaign were based upon some of the work of Mikhail Kaczynski, who's a co-author from the study I mentioned earlier, um, and a recent massive peer-reviewed study that was published in October 2017, uh, which I will link in the show notes, uh, indicates that this kind of technique of profiling people um, can be incredibly effective and actually don't require that much knowledge um, to execute and do well. So when it comes to the ways in which tech shapes our behaviours and in which these sorts of academically sourced and developed techniques can be used by non-trained um, non-academic, um, non-ethically approved entities, where do you think lies the responsibility for ethical use? Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's very tricky. So um, when we published our paper um, uh, showing that Facebook likes can predict these really personal things, um, I remember we, we sat around and as researchers, you know, we're encouraged to um, link our research to the real world. So, you know, we, we sat around and we thought, well, um, how could this actually be used in practice? And uh, someone said, well, what about personalized marketing? So you could change the content of an advert or you can change the targeting of an advert based on the psychology of the person you're talking to. And, you know, we sort of uh, thought, yeah, okay, that's good enough. Shove that in at the end. And, you know, uh, we, we sort of say that this kind of thing is possible. Um, but, you know, we never thought that anyone would use it, you know, at the very least for another, you know, 10, 15 years, because um, most most academic stuff is a long time before anyone uh, you know, pays attention to it. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, we published our paper and then and then very soon after um, there was interest in doing this stuff in marketing. Um, so we started our own experiment, um, you know, almost immediately after publication, um, working with a marketing company to show or to try and measure whether it is possible to personalize adverts and change the targeting um, based on the psychology of the person uh, that you're talking to. Um, so whether that's actually possible in practice. Um, and then, as you say, so at the end of last year, we finally sort of uh, uh, finished and published our, our results showing that, yes, indeed, it is possible. And yes, indeed, it is more effective. Um, I, I do need to sort of temper it a little bit. So um, uh, the, the sort of the company who worked with Trump has sort of announced to everyone that, you know, they're the reason that Trump got elected. Um, but there's not really any evidence that what they were doing was so incredible. And certainly what we found out in our own study was it's it's not trivial to, to actually do this in practice. So we were doing uh, marketing of um, cosmetics. Um, so then you have to, you know, when it comes down to the real world of actually doing this personalized marketing, you have to sit down and go, well, how can you personalize a cosmetics advert for an extrovert or for someone open-minded or for someone agreeable versus low agreeable? Um, and it's not trivial to come up with, you know, what should the marketing message be to those kinds of people? Um, and that's partly why it took us about, you know, three or four years to run these studies, um, because coming up with a right creative and the right message isn't something that is sort of as simple as it may seem on the face of it. Um, and, and that's what I've seen from the Trump stuff as well. So um, some of their adverts have been leaked and 
um, and, and you know, I've, I've been shown some of them. And it's not clear that they're actually doing a lot of the psychological marketing that they talk about. Um, so, you know, just just it's it's not clear from the advert that what they're doing is likely to be very effective. Um, so that is, you know, and it's, that's not to say that it won't be possible and that there won't be more of this done in future. I think there almost certainly will be. But I don't think it's something that has had such a huge effect um, up until this point. So I think people should be vigilant, but also not so afraid that they think you know it's it's already sort of too late Hmm. i think it's a really interesting point you make and i think also this idea of um well i often we think of these things as being something which are either deployed um with extraordinary precision with great impact um and we forget that actually these sorts of approaches take time to integrate into industry whether that's marketing or advertising or content creation or whatever it might be i'm kind of curious to ask whether you think that there is a medium ground where um, we can use some of these approaches in an ethical way, where we don't remove people's agency, where we operate with transparency to create a better experience for people. So maybe where we request consent from customers that have expressed an interest in a specific brand. And then over time, we develop more tailored content or um, products um, that they're going to enjoy better, that they've kind of where they, where they know what they are giving up and what they're getting in return. Do you think that's something that is potentially on the horizon? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think so. So um, this stuff can be used, you know, essentially you've got the ability to persuade someone by sending the right message. Um, now that can be used to persuade you to do something against your own interest, or it can be used to persuade you um, to do something that is in your own interest. So if it's persuading you to exercise more or to use fewer addictive substances, then that's a positive use. Um, if it's um, uh, you know getting you to do something that a politician wants you to do that isn't actually in your own interest, but it's in the politician's interest, then that's using your data against you. Um, so I, I think there is there is a way to use it in a positive way. So let, let, let's take the political example. Um, I've sort of thought about could you use the fact that you can measure someone's personality from their big data? Could you personalize politics in a way that's actually beneficial to them? Um, and the area I thought about was when you know politicians write these political manifestos. So each year in the UK, uh, not each year, but each election, they come up with a manifesto. Um, they normally make it sort of, you know, bright and colorful and, and, you know, they probably write it in language that they think is fun, but still no one actually reads it. Um, so what, what about you go to a website, you share your Facebook data or your Twitter data or your email data, whatever it is, um, and it analyzes that data. And then it says, well, here is your personalized manifesto with the things that we think you're going to be most interested in at the top. So, you know, I'm an academic. You start telling me about education policy. I'm much more interested than if you tell me about, you know, some other policy that I'm not interested in. Um, and that's not to say that you would then hide a politician's policies on, you know, things that you don't predict that they're going to be interested in. Um, they would just be sort of near the bottom, and the stuff that's most likely to be interesting to you is near the top. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, it's it's clear that what is being done, so what data is being analyzed. I've sort of opted into making that happen. 
Um, it's clear that you're analyzing, you know, this data and, and you're giving me this benefit from it. Uh, and, and that's the other side. So it's benefiting me. It's not just benefiting the politician. Um, so I think if you do sort of, you know, if companies or politicians or organizations think about how can we use data with people sort of in collaboration in ways that are going to benefit them in, you know, as you said, transparent in ways that they've got control over, then it is possible to use data and sort of personalize things um, uh, that genuinely benefit people as, as well as benefiting the company or the organization. I wonder with that, though, so I totally hear what you're saying. And I think that if I was interested in a politician, it makes my job much easier um, as a voter to have a look at the most relevant topics for me. But is there a balance to be struck between personalizing things to entice people to to engage versus creating content or um, campaigns that open up people's perspectives to new things that they might find interesting, but based on their previous digital behavior, they have shown very little interest towards. So this idea of kind of instead of tightening the noose or creating a smaller filter bubble, actually expanding that. Is there any room for that, do you think? And whose decision is it whether we want to kind of like tighten our filter bubble or expand it? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. These sort of um, these the conversations around, uh, you know, we, we seem to be living in this filter bubble. So we're only seeing, you know, you search for something and now everything you see for the next, you know, uh, 10 weeks is going to be based on that first search that you see. Right. And you never sort of get out of the original bubble that you started in. Um, I'm. I, I am a lot more skeptical about filter bubbles than some other researchers um, for the reason that I think any filter bubble that we have now has to be compared to the filter bubbles that actually we had before the internet came along. Um, so, you know, when I think of the perspectives that I can have access to now that sort of even sort of get um, get sent to me just because I've got Facebook friends living all over the world or uh, Facebook friends of, you know, different ethnicities and genders and all the rest of it. When I compare that to um, what used to happen, which was, you know, uh, you pick your newspaper in the morning, you tend to read newspaper from, uh, you know, the same editor um, every morning. And the the kind of filter that comes through getting your news from one source versus right now getting your news from all over the place, um, even though there's an algorithm uh, that sort of uh, selects the news that it thinks you'll be most likely interested in. Uh, I just think the filter now is less so than the, you know, the very strong filter that there was in the past. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that you know, the, the, the algorithmic filter we've got right now is, is so powerful compared to um, just what we lived with uh, previously. I'm curious about that in terms of just mere exposure based on the medium. So, for instance, the fact that if you were someone who was more conservative, you'd read one physical paper. If you're someone who is a bit more left leaning, you'd read another. But you'd still have to go to the newspaper section and you'd see the headlines across all the different um, newspapers. And if you were flicking through one specific newspaper, you would have to generally flick through the different sections on the economy, on culture, etc., to get to the bit that you wanted to. So I wonder if it's changed in the sense that we can choose to shut ourselves off from alternative points of view, which we saw happen with um, Brexit and also in the US elections, where people are actually unfriending those people who might offer them a different perspective. Um, and it seems that there's a greater emotional charge uh, and that maybe that's the thing that's 
that's contributing to people not being willing to entertain alternative perspectives is that something that you think is happening or do you think again it's you know relative to before it's something which still isn't affecting people in a really adverse way I, I, I do think there's a difference now which is um, the news is more kind of outrageous um, so we're looking for this kind of emotional hit that and uh, you know you can get that partly from this news comes from someone in my camp um, but you can also get it partly from just it's the same news I would have got before, but written in a way that seems sort of more extreme and more, um, you know, sort of uh, trying to rile me up. Um, and I do think there's an effect here with news organizations sort of fighting for attention um, that they do start writing more extremist things, whereas perhaps previously you'd have a newspaper with an extremist kind of, uh, you know, rabble-rousing headline, but actually once you get to page five, then it's all pretty much tame from then on. Um, so, I, yeah, I do think that's going on. On the other hand, I still think it's a matter of a d degree, and, and I think I just... I get so many perspectives, um, uh, you know, from the people I'm following on Twitter, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm following 300 people or something. And I, I just wouldn't have talked to 300 people in, you know, in any possible way um, uh, if it wasn't for um, the Internet and Twitter and things like that. OK, so let's say let's fast forward five, ten years down the line when um, people have honed um, ways in which to track user behavior and predict things that they'll like, how to target adverts to make them more personalizable, etc. Do you think that ethics committees now have a greater responsibility to consider the potential ramifications of academic research on the public when considering whether to allow certain studies to be undertaken? Because in my view, I think that technology is only going to get better at enabling us to deploy the insights that we glean from these sorts of studies. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult one because um, so you know I, I look back on this um, the, this study we did with Facebook data and think um, sh would it be better if that study wasn't done right because then it's less likely that um, you know these uh, uh, politician marketer would have picked up on it and and used it um, but I, I still sort of um, I think it's better that academics are doing these kinds of studies and making the answers sort of widely known as wide as possible um, so that people know early on what could be done and therefore can kind of look out for it. Um, so when I think of um, some of the other things that happen like uh, fake news and, and Russia involved and, and things like that, it sort of felt like we didn't hear about those until after the election, mostly, and it sort of felt like it came out of the blue. Whereas some of this kind of uh, psychological marketing and things like that, I feel like there was already, at least um, in some circles, sort of debate and, and discussion around uh, what's possible and you know what our privacy settings should be and, and those kinds of things. Um, so I think it is better that people know about what's possible early on than you know, we sort of uh, pretend like, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we're not interested in the answer to this question. And then the risk is that companies sort of do it secretly and then we don't find out about it until it's already hit us, until it's already happened, until it's too late to do anything about it. 
Um, so I think there is an important place for academics sort of researching stuff, making it known widely and starting a public debate as early as possible so that we can try to sort of think forwards rather than um, uh, just let it happen to us. Yeah, that's a really, I think that's a really viable perspective. Um, what's, your, what's your greatest concern for the future with the kinds of potentials that we're seeing now for this kind of research being used in specific Do you have any concerns? So I'm, I'm not worried about large companies because they're always thinking about their reputation. They're thinking about their brand. They're thinking about what will my customers think. Um, it's those people who don't have customers that I'm more concerned about. So um, either the little startups who sort of try some stuff just because they can. Um, or the other side is governments who are, you know, less democratic or at least maybe they're democratic, but they're secret about what they do. Um, and then people don't necessarily know what is happening and know what is possible. Um, and, and that's when it starts getting scary, when, when they start using our data against us and we've got no way of uh, expressing our disapproval. Mm, yeah, I completely in agreement with you on that point. Um, what would be your greatest hope for the future relative to all this? So too often right now, companies sit down and think, uh, how can I get the most from this data? Right. But they don't think about where the data comes from. They just think, well, I've passed the privacy you know, rules and therefore it's my data now and I can do with whatever I like. Um, so I think companies sort of, uh, I want them to start working in ways that kind of collaborate with their customers in ways that genuinely benefit the customers and not just the company. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I do think this is not necessarily a sort of some brave new world that we've never seen before. You know, I think if you think back to, you know, the 1950s, um, you went to a shop and you knew the shopkeeper and the shopkeeper knew you and your family and was able to give you a really personal service. Um, but that's obviously very expensive. So now there's a potential, can we do that on a large scale in a cheap way um, using algorithms instead, um, uh, as long as it's for people's benefit. Okay, so final question. If you could give businesses one action that they could take to create this more kind of equitable relationship with their customers using this kind of technology, what would that be? I think it would be be transparent with every use of data that you do. And if you're afraid to be transparent, it probably means you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Um, so I think sort of shining a light on how data is being used um, is going to benefit both people, but also the companies in the long run um, so much more because people right now, they're starting to feel like, well, I mean, they're, they're already feeling like companies are creepy, companies are using data in ways that I don't understand. And if, if companies were only sort of, you know, incredibly transparent with what they're doing with the data, then people would not start sort of... Um, imagining things that companies that they think companies might be doing but they're not really um so lots of people think that you know uh, google is listening to us via our phones on the microphone um but as far as anyone can tell there's no evidence that that's actually happening but people feel like you know it it, it feels like it is happening because you don't understand how google is so good at what it does um so if only google was more transparent and people would not start sort of making up imagined um scary things that the companies are doing Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can find resources and links on the show notes page at 
natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes and join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.